take a seat. rest of our time together this morning before we break for a great Portland lunch, we just wanted to create some space to start workshopping this out. You are at Bridgetown Church, and uh, Practicing the Way is very much a ministry that's from and born out of Bridgetown for the church at large, and so we just wanted to create a little bit of time. Tomorrow we get to hear from all sorts of other pastors and leaders, but tonight, or this morning, we want to hear from the Bridgetown, not the entire staff, there's too many, but from a few of them. So this is Bethany Allen, who has been around, you just had your 10-year anniversary, right? 10 years together. That's been, it was, it was a wild ride. It's been such an honor and joy. Bethany is the pastor for spiritual formation and leadership development at the church and the executive leadership here and a gift. Jaron uh, Oda is our youth pastor. My children have been uh, under his shepherding for years and uh, he, you are Ohana to us, brother, and we love you so much. Gavin is our one of two on the communities team. So he runs our, how many communities now at Bridgetown? About 100, yeah, kind of neighborhood-based table communities. Joy is extraordinary. We didn't get to work together much, which is so sad. So I know most of you by reputation. My children are too old to enjoy you, and I was too late to enjoy you. But she is a phenomenal pastor of kids. And of course, Tyler Staten, you know, is the lead pastor at Bridgetown Church. So um, I'm just going to host a little bit of a panel conversation with these two, and then we're going to kick it out to you to ask not anything you want, but anything within basic Christian ethics that you want uh, is fantastic. Tyler, maybe let's start with you, you know, as kind of the most recent addition to the Bridgetown leadership and obviously in that very central role. What was your experience like coming into a church that was, you know, at that point, four or five years into the journey of kind of practicing the way and formation and kind of re-architecture? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do my best just to very directly answer the question and not do the thing most pastors do on panels like these um, <laughs> and go forever. But the, the, the most direct answer is I stepped into and inherited a community of maturity and practice. And the ways that I experienced that from a church that had been on a journey of trying to put formation at the center for five years was uh, first in maturity, I, I remember saying to you early on, I'm so glad you built this beautiful house so that I could install a jungle gym in the backyard. And, and what I meant by that is because of our friendship, um, I knew that we both carry different charisms, you know, of what God has called us to do and, and how God's called us to lead in the church, but we hold so much of the same dearly at the core of us. And so I felt like as, as a church over the last year, we've been able to journey into the ministry of the Spirit in a really mature way um, and journey into expressions of justice and mercy in a really mature way. And I think that most of the time, those two expressions in particular are everything or nothing in American churches, right? It's like, it's like if you practice any of the more miraculous gifts of the Spirit that we see on the pages of Scripture, it's either everything or it's nothing. And if, if you're about justice, it, it typically is everything. It's, it is the gospel or it's more or less not a part of the gospel. And I think that at Bridgetown, we've actually been able to take on additional expressions um, but do so in a mature way, where it doesn't become everything or nothing, but it becomes an ongoing part of our discipleship to Jesus and our pursuit of Him. So there's been a maturity in the congregation that has allowed us to journey together uh, as uh, equal participants on a journey with Jesus um, without fear and without, uh, I don't know, I guess, overemphasis or idolization of particular aspects of the, of the journey of discipleship or apprenticeship. Secondly, um, I would say practice. You know, something one of our team members said to me recently when we were planning the new year that has just really stayed with me. Uh, it was Casey said to me, Tyler, make sure 
that what you tell the church to do next, you've thought carefully about and processed with God because they will do it. And I just, that stuck with me because I thought, that's never been my problem before. <laughs> you know? It's always been, make sure that you say this in the greatest way it's ever been said so that some people might do it. And to step into a community where practice is a part of the DNA, where what we talk about on Sundays is essentially just setting up the true experience, which is to put into practice the way of Jesus with a few others, um, has been such a gift um, and is so in the DNA of the community that uh, people are expecting that they are constantly going to be pruning their own lives in order to increasingly become radicalized in their discipleship to Jesus, because that's what we do here. That's like the only thing we offer is increasingly radical discipleship to Jesus. And that will constantly, increasingly involve practice because I'm a whole person. So those are the, the primary things I've stepped into that I've been so grateful to inherit that have been a part of a real, it's been a long journey to arrive at that destination and we're still very much on a journey. Very much. Say your thing about how at Basics we have an agenda for your life. Oh yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, I, I always like to be very clear, the same thing Basics, the class that I inherited that John Mark was teaching and we did a, a similar um, quarterly class at the church that I led in Brooklyn, but I always just like to be very clear and say, just so you know, we have a very strong agenda for your life at this church. It is discipleship to Jesus. And so if what you want is not whole life, touch every last part of my inner world discipleship to Jesus, you will feel tension here. And you will experience this place as something less than a safe space. Because this is not, and I'm, I'm being sincere, I say this, this is not a safe space in that you can become here whoever you want to become. You can become here formed into the image of Jesus. And so if that's what you desire, you will find this to be the safest space that you've ever walked into. But if that is not what you desire, you will find continual tension with this community. So I just want you to know up front, if you step deeper into the life of our church, that's what we're gonna try to do to you here. And if you want it, come on. And if you don't want it, I warned you. So well said. Exactly. You know, I feel with the way about Tyler that people keep asking me, how's it, how's it going with Tyler? Is he doing an okay job? And I just keep thinking of that scene in Elf, you know, where Buddy the Elf stays up all night redecorating the department store. And the manager comes in, he's like, you've seen this? It's pretty good. It's a little too good. <laughs> I think somebody's gunning for my job. I'll be on the radio. It's basically how I feel about this man. No, I'm kidding. Delight of my heart. Um, Bethany, you know, you, Tyler is kind of our newest elder level leader. You are one of our oldest, that sounds wrong, I'm so sorry. Uh, original, OG, whatever, most experienced and wise. So you have been with our church, like me, through this whole journey, the kind of before, after, and there wasn't a line in the sand moment. I mean, there's a moment, but it's very gradual and we're still very much in process and people are coming and going, so you know all the things. But you were there before when we were very much a kind of not, not even charismatic, we were very much like a synagogue model, Sunday-centric, sermon-preaching kind of church and now to what we are today. Talk about some of the obstacles that you had to, at a pastoral level, walk people through who had been a part of a more, what for us, we both grew up in that kind of evangelical tradition, um, into a kind of church around a table, practices, rule of life, formation, inner life, emotional health, open to the Holy Spirit, doing the things of God in the city. That's a, that's a lot of shifts. What were some of the obstacles that you had to pastor people through? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question that I could answer in four hours. Yeah, but, so just uh, give us, uh, could, you, could you nail down yeah. like the top two or three, you know? Yeah, 
You know, I think the shift felt gradual over time, and yet in many ways, I think one of the, the first obstacles we faced as a community was the detox of the very thing you're talking about. So of us, when we began, when we decided in our heart, like John Mark was talking about this morning, that this was what we were going to do, sitting in this room going like, what's the name of this thing and what are we gonna do with it? I think there was a, you know, there's a space of saying like, if we're gonna do this, it means that other things have to die. Like there's other programs or ideas or methods that we've used and functioned that will have to go to the wayside in order for this to actually be central to the life of our church, which you get the undercurrent of that is massive labor. So there was that like a practical, you know, over, overarching pastoral level that we were wrestling through that we knew would be pain points for our people. So, you know, I think the, the, one of the first obstacles was just not selling a product to them, but, but inviting them into the, the invitation they've always had for their life in the kingdom, which is come and die with us. We are going to die with you. We want to go after this thing. We think this is the most compelling way to receive what Jesus was actually talking about. So I think it was this kind of tension of helping them process and let go of what was so that they could embrace what is, which for sheep is like a nightmare. You know, with people like, ah, all over the place. <laughs> Whoa, you did the, the sheep sound. Yeah. That was amazing. That's a you new know, one. angry frustrated, yeah. confused. We had kind of done the missional, we had dabbled in the missional community world. So no, we, we didn't dabble, we tried we went hard. and failed. We did, I was just trying to be polite about it, but we, we did that and that wasn't working. So it was this, this a bumpy journey at first where people left, where people got frustrated, where the consumable good was no longer what they wanted. Yeah. Um, we were changing if, the social contract. Yeah. You know, it's like every church has a social contract that's yeah. unspoken. But it was, it was painting and repainting and casting a vision for something which is the way of Jesus, which is compelling enough to, to fold people in. So it was a pruning season. There was pain points for people personally and in their concept of church. But I will, and this is like really simple, but it, it was offering the bread and the cup of Jesus and saying, this is sufficient and it's more than you could expect or imagine. So, you know, we had all the emails and the frustrations and all of those wonderful one-on-one -on -one coffee conversations that everybody desires to have. Uh, but we just kept saying, this is it, this is it, this is it. And I just, it's easy to look at what it is now, but to know that like it did require a lot of death yeah. in our own personal ideas or models or methods of what we thought we should do. And, and to rein it in and say, this is the main thing. And we're gonna give all that we've got to go after the main thing. So that was one of them. I mean, I think you have, you know, the other thing that just sticks in my mind, just before you move on, I think is, this was risky, you know, I'm talking about the cost, but I think you're calling people to risk too. We're calling the church to say like, hey, we're gonna go, we're gonna do this thing, this is the way that we're gonna do it together. And we weren't even certain. I mean, you heard him say it, like we were like, hope it works, hope nobody dies, I don't know, I mean, you know, we just like, I hope this gets off the ground. I think we've had these conversations with a lot of you in the room over Zoom or whatever over the last few years of like, we were taking a risk and asking them to do the same, which required an, an integrity and an ethic in us as pastors to steward, like a, a, a disposition of humility, which is hard to do sometimes when you're leading some, some people into something new, but also into greater fidelity to this way that we were calling them to. So I think there was a, at a pastoral level, there's that cost and then translating that to the people was a harder thing because we had never done it so vulnerably before. We, haven't, we hadn't led so vulnerably in our leadership before. So, and saying like, I don't know what a rule of life is, but I'm gonna figure it out in the next six weeks and then we're gonna teach on it. I mean, you know, like, that's a, that's a it really- It wasn't six weeks. No, no, and you had it dialed in. The rest seven, of us were like, you know. where, are the, where are the cliff notes for this? But I think, you know, I mean, if we're honest, I mean, he's brilliant and we're, we're almost there. So. That's, that's called bad leadership. No, and, and, and I, <laughs> Just for the record. Just to be honest, so you know, we were just, we were going like, we're trying this in faith, God, and it yeah. was, a daily submission to like, Jesus, make much of yourself even in our brokenness as we risk with this community and then to call them into the risk. And the, the gift is that they've seen the faithfulness of God just as we have. Just like we're all coming up on the promised land together and going, look at the faithfulness of God and what he's done in us, so. Yeah. Gav, thank you, Bethany. Um, Gav, I'd love to hear, it just doesn't have to be even long, but just for those that aren't super familiar with kind of the, how we rebuilt communities, like 
maybe just talk about the architecture of how we do community at, you know, even just at a high, kind of high level, walk people kind of into that and what you're experiencing in that as you pastor all of those communities, all of those people. Yeah, so the way that uh, Natalie and I kind of run the communities department here is around proximity. So one of the models is we've been talking for years and years and years and years about church not just around a stage, but church around a table, is what does that table look like? How are we putting people together? And there's so many different models for it of stage of life and interest group. But for us, the one we landed on was proximity. And a lot of that has to do with the context of Portland. It's split into five quadrants, which doesn't make sense because quadrant means four. But there are five, <laughs> there are five quadrants uh, split by a, a road and a river, and people don't like crossing those roads and rivers. And so we thought, well, this is probably the easiest easiest way to do that. So then we kind of jumped on to uh, this idea of missional communities as has been brought up, where the leading edge of these groups was mission. Uh, and what we realized in our context uh, was that people can do things that look like mission, but not be disciples. Uh, and so it looked like people serving the houseless population under the Burnside Bridge uh, and then getting wasted with their friends afterwards. Uh, or cleaning DHS visitation rooms and then going home to their boyfriend or girlfriend. And for us, we thought, man, what we want is a people who uh, are disciples, because when we changed that, the whole theory, I guess, with practicing the way for us was, as we changed that leading edge to discipleship, you can do something that looks like mission without being a disciple, but you cannot be a disciple without doing something that looks like mission. Yes. Uh, and so for us then, communities are neighborhood-based groups uh, of 10 to 15 people in various stages of life and seasons of life with the idea that that's what the early church looked like. We want kids, we want youth in our communities because we want them to leave home one day and go, man, I want that now too. So it's not just their parents' communities. We want an integrated model that does discipleship from the top down. So the three kind of focuses you've probably heard a thousand times for us, practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. Discipleship is that practicing the way piece. Um, which is typically guides connected to what we're teaching on Sunday, so it's not just information or inspiration, it's also invitation from the Spirit in these communities. Uh, and then together is family, and it's this idea that like what we do together in hanging out and game nights, we tell our people all the time, game nights is a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual discipline to share stories, it's a spiritual discipline to have fun, because that's the space where vulnerability and safety is created for discipleship to actually take place. So that's together, which is family, and then in Portland is mission. We believe we have a spiritual responsibility for the place in which we live. And so we're currently in this fall series, pushing our people out of the, the communities, in, still in their community, but out of the living rooms and onto the streets and wondering where can we find Jesus already at work on the margins and how can we find him there and recognize him and point him out and be with folks in that space. So communities for us is a long-term thing. Sometimes churches do it seasonally, uh, which is great. Again, just the nature of our city, the nature of what we found works for us. Um, we ask people to sign up for a year uh, and to really push through it because again, what comes up in that space is relational uh, conflict, which is itself a spiritual discipline to work through. Yeah. It's easy to leave, it's hard to stay. And so for us, discipleship is everything from game nights and playing to staying and having hard conversations to sitting at church together and to eating meals. And it sounds idealistic and romantic and it doesn't always feel that way. Um, but that's in short what we do. Yeah, very well said. Can, Thank you, can I just add one thing? I think it's important to name briefly, which is I think that one of my observations in stepping into the Bridgetown community structure has been that it works because of upfront honesty. Like you mentioned the social contract before. Bridgetown is, we're wildly clear around here about what we're inviting people into and about the underwhelming nature on the other side of the inspiring idea. So, so we're just constantly really clear about the fact that uh, of like Bonhoeffer's wish dream or, or the idea that community in our imaginations is not the community that can form you. The actual community is the one that can form you. And so you will go through a period of disillusionment if you step deeper into this church. Ride it out. That's part of the journey of formation. That's what we're on. And so I think to be honest and upfront has made the church feel like a river with a current to me, where there, there's a current, there's a momentum to this stream, to where we're going. And I think one of the things that happens sometimes when a, a community takes on a real formation ethos 
is that you draw a bunch of angsty Christians because you're finally the church that gets it or something like that. Um, and, and yet my experience is that if you go on the, a journey of unlearning and then relearning and by putting formation at the center, we're experiencing a massive amount. Like you were talking about pruning but you prune so that you might be even more fruitful, right? We're experiencing a massive amount of, of new life and people coming to faith. And I think some of that is because we are not a bait and switch community. We're an honest community. And so people know what they're getting themselves into. And that has been a gift that has blessed a lot of this and I think has allowed community structures to be resilient just because of honesty. Yeah, spiritual realism. Yeah, well said. Joy, you know, um, like there, we still have so far away, so far to go as a church, like all of us, and it's very much a process. But you know, from the beginning, we were like, we want this integrated into the whole of our church, from like cradle to grave kind of thing. But it was like we're just trying to survive Sunday and <laughs> what is a rule of life and all of that. Talk to us about how you're integrating that into kids and like that life stage and development and all of that. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think a great place to start is that um, Barna study, the Resilient Disciples study that John Mark mentioned earlier, about 8% of kids graduating from the church into young adulthood having that resilient faith. And so about a year ago, a number of us got together in a room and thought about those kids in our context, those kids in our church family who have become mature and resilient disciples as they've transitioned to young adulthood. And we worked backwards from their young adulthood and looked at what are all of the like prerequisites in formation that these kids need to have in order to grow into that type of disciple. And so we looked through youth and we looked through kids all the way back to preschool at what practices and foundations and expressions are vital um, to that resilient spiritual life. And so um, we as a team identified about five core practices that need to be introduced to kids and a handful of other foundations like orthodoxy and the Imago Dei and emotional health that are vital for kids um, to develop and thought about how do we introduce all of these things in age and stage appropriate ways so that kids are essentially going on a pathway through Bridge Bridgetown kids, through Bridgetown youth towards um, community and maturity um, and have all of the things they need. And so some of that happens in the context of our Sunday kids ministry. Some of that happens in the context of the home. So we partner with parents to do that. And a lot of that happens in the context of community like Gavin was talking about. In that same Barna study, it found that of those um, kids that were determined to be resilient disciples, the differentiating factor was that they had adults in their church community yeah. that cared about them, not just them hitting milestones, but deeply cared about them. And it wasn't just one adult like outside their parents. We were talking about it earlier. It was closer to six. Um, adults in their church family that deeply cared about them. And so because of it, not just for adults, but for kids, formation has to happen in the context of community. And that means that we have to fully integrate kids into the rest of our church. And that's uncomfortable, but kids need to be fully brought into the vision of our church. And so that's why our vision um, for kids is the exact same as it is for the rest of the church. We don't have a different mission, vision, and values for our kids ministry because they are fully integrated. We're still working out exactly what that looks like, but um, when they feel like the body of Christ is safe, they go into young adulthood, not only having um, essentially a framework through that pathway, but they also have a safe place to work those things out when they encounter the hard knocks of life, that they have um, a framework as well as a place. So, Somebody put this woman yeah. in leadership. Yeah. Holy cow. Thank you. Very well said. And uh, a long time coming. Just really grateful for you. Well yes. done. Jaron, before we start to open it up, um, you know, not to put you on the spot, but you know, you're in that interesting spot where you are in the millennial bracket and you're working with Gen Z and youth ministry. And, uh, and those generations are, are, are not the same. And I'm learning a lot about the differences, different challenges, different weaknesses, different strengths. What's some of the like very bleeding edge stuff that you're facing at a pastoral level as you're working to walk with children and youth and high schoolers into formation into the image of Jesus? What, what are some of those generational trends that we really need to like have our finger on the pulse of to see if this is happening, this is a challenge, this, you know? to kind of form our pastoral imagination because often we're, we're building our church strategy on people that are already, either already formed or either don't care, rather than, you know, those that are coming up. Yeah. So I would start by saying, oh my gosh, my mic, okay. 
Thank you, folks. I would start by saying this. Um, this book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Yeah, I recommend what to a every book. single mm. youth pastor, whatever. She has this line in there where she says, young people are generally the first to catch on to new ideas. So consider youth ministry almost like a little bit of a lab of the future to some degree, because I'm seeing the ideology around gender and sexuality uh, impact young people like I've never quite encountered, even my own sexuality, working through that now as a result of pastoring a lot of kids that are in the middle of that. So I would just say young people are generally the catch on to new ideas, but also the first people group, generally speaking, to be impacted by them and influenced by them. So um, <clears throat> I would say gender and sexuality is a huge one. Um, I would also say that racial reconciliation, ethnic, just understanding ethnic sophistication is a beautiful gift to young people because Gen Z is the most diverse generation in America um, up to date. So that's a beautiful thing that we need as leaders to become more impacted by. But I would just say this to youth pastors, the best way, in my opinion, to become a leader of youth is to reflect on how you've been led. What worked for you? And I know Gen Z and um, millennials are different, but honestly, when you are pastoring from that space, you will return to what's most functional a lot of times and to reflect on what's functionally shaped you in the way of Jesus through leaders, I think has been one of the most beneficial things for me. Uh, it's a book that I'm quoting again, Bobby Clinton, The Making of a Leader. He said, the best way to wield authority is to sit under it and then reflect on it and then go and practice it. So that's what I've been trying to do. But I would just say being led is very, very important for youth pastors. Um, as a result, you're also stepping into, in my opinion, the cutting edge problems of gender, sexuality, um, technology, ethnic um, and racial reconciliation. And then also from my perspective too, is integrating social justice into discipleship. Um, I think that's an incredibly important avenue to work on, something that we at Bridgetown Youth have actually done and seen a lot of fruit from. So partnering those two things together, I think is incredible. Gabe Lyons had a quote where he said that if you don't understand like social renewal, you will not understand this emerging Christians. So get on the train with that. And what I mean by that is like practical touch points of discipling students to recognize this isn't just good work, but God's love has literally led you to unlovable places. And you now get to be the hands and, this Tyler says this so well, you now are the hands and feet of Jesus himself. And so connecting the story of God to social justice is so important for youth as well. I could think of a ton more, but. No, that's, I mean, and at like a very pragmatic level, I'm thinking about me growing up in youth ministry, like once a month was like movie night where we told like fart jokes and watched PG-13 movies, you know? But like for my kids, once a month is because people matter, where you, they go under the Burnside Bridge and make food and clip toenails and do facials on people who live outside and, at one level, you're bringing the youth ministry together, they're making friends, they're doing all those things that we were trying to do with movie night, but yet they're a part of the renewal of the city, you know, that's beautiful. Um, before we kick it to questions, just Tyler, I would just, to round this off before we open it up, what do you see that needs to happen in, you know, as the leaders go, so goes the church? So before this can ever happen in a community, it has to happen here at the highest level of leaders, whatever that looks like for your church, elders, staff, whatever. Um, what do you feel like needs to happen at a, at a leadership level? Yeah, I can definitely answer that. I also wanna name one thing for, with Jaron that I've seen him work on to get at a number of the bleeding edge issues. You've worked really hard on what biblical literacy looks like for the youth in our church over the last year. And that's so important. I think uh, I grew up at a time when a, a lot of people just trusted the Bible because it was the Bible and therefore seemed trustworthy, but that's not the context that you're ministering in. And I've had to think really hard about not just how do we get the youth to serve under the Burnside Bridge, but then how do we get them to understand where the Bible came from and why it is the, a gift, a pathway to life. Um, then, yeah, how do, how do we get this into our churches? I would just say really simply, it has to start at the level of your staff. Um, and, you know, John Mark said it, but we say this all the time, as the leaders go, so they go to the church. So I, I think that the, the staff has to be kind of like the hottest coals in the fire, and then the leaders, and, then, and that makes sense conceptually, but then how do you do that? Uh, just to be really blunt and honest about the ways that we're probably doing it well and messing it up at the same time, we have three staff life rhythms that every staff member in our church uh, is required to carry and be committed to 
They are uh, Sabbath, rule of life, and a daily prayer rhythm. And so what we mean by that is we require every staff member to practice a 24-hour Sabbath and to create a Sabbath container, just a really simple uh, list of Sabbath rituals of how they practice Sabbath. Uh, we know each other's Sabbaths so that we can honor them um, uh, rather than defile them uh, in the way we relate to one another on the Sabbath. Secondly, um, a rule of life. Every team member uh, at Bridgetown Church is required to create a rule of life. Uh, I give everyone kind of a grid of where to start with and then to hand that off to their direct supervisor on staff so that when we do like monthly management meetings, half of it is about their own discipleship to Jesus and then half of it is about their responsibilities, their primary job responsibilities in the church. That requires managerially for you to be very clear about when you're transitioning from one to the other. Otherwise, it can become manipulative really, really fast. But if you're clear, then you can do this well, and that's a part of leadership in the church, I believe. And then third um, is a daily prayer rhythm. So if you're around here on any given day, we stop everything at 1 p.m., and everyone gets up from their desk, and regardless of what they're doing, we gather in a common space, and we pray together. And for us, uh, we have a theme to that midday rhythm, and, we, and it trades off which staff member's leading that week. But we just commune with Jesus for five minutes and return to our work. And we have a morning rhythm and an evening rhythm as well. So we're meeting with Jesus three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, honoring offices, if you're familiar with that language as a staff. And the reason that we do that is because uh, we, want to, we want our days to be ordered by communion with Jesus or communion with the Father not by the demands of our workday or the next mealtime or how close we happen to be getting toward the weekend. And so we're trying to order everything that we do internally around our own apprenticeship to Jesus rather than order everything we do internally around um, you know, our workplace excellence, the most urgent demands, you know, whatever, all the other stuff that, that tends to seep in. And uh, again, it's just like an alarming level of upfront clarity and honesty that I think drives this which is that I get to lead our staff, and I think that's the primary way that I can influence our church, is the way that I lead our staff. And I'm able to say to them up front, in every way that being a part of working for a church can be a normal job for you, I'll make it that. I'll protect your time and your evenings and, your, and in the ways that this is not a normal job, I'll be honest with you about that. And one way this is not a normal job is that this is about whole life discipleship to Jesus. And so you must be increasingly formed into his image in order to lead others to be increasingly formed into his image. So that's what you're signing up for when you work at Bridgetown Church, is to, is to say, I, I'm stepping into a calling, not just a place that I'm punching the clock. And I think that's been an important way that our staff has been formed and hopefully an important way that we're forming our leaders and subsequently our congregation. It's incredible, thank you. Um, now with the rest of our time, we just wanna kick it open to you. We have a few runners, Christian, is there somebody else? Nothing. Just you. No, someone's in the balcony. Ah, uh, yeah, great, awesome. Um, so thanks, Sam. So we're just gonna open up for questions. Put your hand up, just, I don't know, how, the most gracious way of saying, she wants to ask a question. Please, please no sermons. Please no insights. I was praying this morning, and this is what I, yeah. Just if you have a question that you would like this crew to respond to, that would be so fun to do together. Be amazing. I have two questions. And I'd love to get your name and just where you're from. My doesn't need a life biography. Just my name is Kim Four. I'm from Washington, Pennsylvania. Amazing. Welcome. Um, I'm here not within the context of being a church leader, but okay. being married to one. And as such, I have two questions. I have one that's a church question and one that's a cultural question. So my church question is, uh, what has, um, my observation is that where the discipleship movements in the past have run amok is um, when they've tried to live that out in community, they've gone into legalism. So how do you avoid that? And my second question is um, DEI, diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion, is quickly becoming transformational in our culture. I mean, it's transforming our culture. If you're in any work situation, 
it's taking over. And as a Christian, I find it very difficult to have an answer to that when there's a underlying truth that the culture grasp a hold of in that we need to um, have a greater diversity, include people, but what it means is you need to accept any kind of lifestyle living out that, that as a Christian I know is not life-giving, but I don't know how to, I don't know how to express that in a way that invites people to change. Thank you for that. Thank you for your honesty. Yeah. Thank you for caring about both of those questions. Um, any of you want to take a shot at the first one? Do you have thoughts? I have thoughts. Okay, great. So just really quickly in the context of small group communities, one of the things that we've done, I, I think well, and it was at the very beginning of our kind of practicing the way journey was one of the ways that we keep it from being legalistic is we, we let and ask and allow and encourage each person in the community to define what success for them looks like in that practice. So rather than this week, we're all gonna practice silence and solitude for 30 minutes, it's hey, let's have a conversation about where you're currently at and where you feel an invitation from the spirit and that's what we're checking in on next week. So somebody's like, I've never done this in my life and it terrifies me, I'm gonna do five minutes twice a week, great. Awesome, and somebody else is like, oh, I have a practice regularly, I wanna go on a retreat. Awesome, so that's sort of, and essentially what we're saying is, I can't do your spiritual formation for you. You have to do it. And if you're not gonna choose in, it's not gonna happen. So that's, in one end, it protects us at a pastoral level, but at two, it inspires actual discipleship. They get to define success for them within the realms of that practice, not us. And that's, that's what we're checking in on. I'd also add to that, you know, I think it's easy to go like, well, we're giving them rules and a program and a system to function by, so this will be, this is how we tick that box. But I will just say that the way that, it, and what Gavin is speaking to is like this unique gift of people actually getting to show up as they are in community. But it's just like a reminder, I think what we've seen God do in that space is as people are showing up authentically, and that is our invitation, and we keep saying, the practices are like the accelerator, we're like, keep going, he's worth this, he's worth this, he's worth this, and we're saying that in the guides, and we're saying that through the family and like the missionary aspect of our communities. I'll just say, what keeps legalism away is the spirit of God that's present in the room, which I know can sound, I know it sounds trite, it can sound that way, but I'll just say we've seen it work, where this is an authentic space where we're inviting the presence of God to come, and when he comes, he's disrupting all kinds of crap, and it's good, it's transformational, it's guarding us from that legalistic kind of infrastructure. And that's where I think one of the things in the way our communities are formed is, you know, we do training on group kind of direction, group spiritual direction and triads, same gender kind of triads meeting together. And part of that is to create, a central part of that is to create space for the confession of sin. And, you know, John, a lot of this was back to a passing comment you made a few years ago where you were talking, we were talking about AA, I think, in context, and you said, there is something about going to church and at the communion time, saying sorry to God in your mind as you're walking down the aisle to all by yourself take the cracker and the juice that doesn't have nearly the transformative effect as sitting in a dingy church basement and saying, hi, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. And you said something like, because the second one is actually closer to the New Testament concept of the confession of sin than the first one. And so, you know, confession of not, I'm sorry to God in your mind thing. That's a great place to start, but it is a community thing that we do together. And so that will really fight against legalism. We're, right. we're part of what we're doing together is talking about all the ways that we have messed up and dropped the ball and blown it and trying to create a space you know, of vulnerability. But I think that's a real, that's a real part, of, part of the trick. Yeah, so to the second question, it's a heavily nuanced question that deserves an hour and a half minimum, but I think to try to give just a couple bullet point thoughts. We have a responsibility, if you're a teacher in a church, I think to give people a biblical model for justice, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, there is a, a cultural definition of these things that is becoming more and more popular that has elements of Jesus in it, but is not the way of Jesus. And so uh, I don't think our role as the church is to combat that. I think our role as the church is to form disciples who are made in the image of Jesus. So uh, just to name a couple of things quickly, um, 
justice as understood culturally, or and, and I'm just going to use that as a catch-all term for diversity, equity, inclusion, everything you just named, um, is an abstract concept, and in the Bible, it's a person, right? The, the thrust of Scripture builds up to the person of Jesus, who is the embodiment of justice, who's come to bring the shalom of God. Um, so when we talk about these things, we're not talking about an abstract concept that could come to bear. We're talking about a person who reigns as king. And so I think we have to understand that. Secondly, we were even discussing last night over dinner that biblically justice is, is a positive concept that, that is coming to bear. Culturally, it's often a negative, right? We, we have to do justice against is almost the idea. And, and so I think we have to have a positive vision of what the kingdom of God looks like and the role that justice plays. And then we have to lead communities on a journey into the, the biblical understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which involves lament, repentance, and forgiveness, and then reconciliation. And to shortcut that process is to end up with, a, um, with the appearance of something that doesn't have the substance beneath it to actually hold it. It's to end up with a, a, a room that looks more colorful, but uh, with my friendships all mostly looking like my race and class. It's, it's that kind of thing. So, so in, again, incredibly nuanced question, but I would just offer those nuggets. And lastly, I would say this, that I think this is the starting point that we as disciples of Jesus have to take on, is that when, when rebuking the Pharisees, uh, among all the things that Jesus had to say to them in Matthew 23, one was, uh, you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law. You've strained out a gnat, but you've swallowed, the, you've swallowed a camel. And I think often we are trying to talk about justice from outside of the concept of context of relationship with those who are marginalized, excluded, or actually like have, have the boot of oppression on their neck, so to speak. So the role of disciples of Jesus is first immerse yourself in relationship with the marginalized, and then from the context of relationship, from proximity, then begin to think about the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if you're not immersed in relationship, you're in danger of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's a little too good. <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful. Sam, let's take a question from the balcony. Somebody, somebody up north. That's well said. No questions at the balcony? All right. Down here. Oh, lots of questions down here. Christian, there we go. Oh, sure. Uh, hey there, gang. Uh, I'm Chad. I'm from Halifax in Canada. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. And so we're planting a church. It's a really practical question. Just how do you do Sabbath as a staff team? Is that all on the same day? Is that scattered? Like, again, really pragmatic question, but just kind of thinking through productivity, but also Sabbath. Is everyone off? Is our, are all the phones off for 24 hours in the whole church? Just those little nuances of how you do Sabbath as a team would be helpful. I can just speak to that quickly. Um, for almost everyone, it's the same. Uh, for some team members, it may be slightly different. Almost everyone has Friday and Saturday off, but depending on roles, some people need to have different adjustments to that. However, the, the direct supervisor to each team member knows when their Sabbath is happening and what their Sabbath practices are. Um, so that's the way that it's honored. And we also, I, I think we hold and name a really clear value of communication within our staff. So when Sabbath, for instance, is being violated, we have equally a call on our staff to say, hey, we need to, you need to go to that person and talk about it so that we can honor one another. And then in terms of how people engage uh, technology on the Sabbath or, or do anything like that, we actually don't have hard and fast rules into how team members observe the Sabbath. Uh, we have suggestions, ideas, thoughts, things to look out for, things to lean into. But uh, th there's not like a, you need to Sabbath this way. There is a thoughtfully interact with and choose with your family or community or whoever you Sabbath with what your Sabbath practice looks like, then report back. And then we're going to talk about your Sabbath practice as a part of your apprenticeship to Jesus when we get together. So that's how we practice it as a team. 
The other thing I would just jump in on that at the risk of overstepping my bounds is, you know, your church planning. So you have this once in a church life opportunity to lay a foundation. And Bridgetown is an extraordinary church. I can say that now as kind of kind of on the outside of it. And, but that doesn't mean that it's perfect. It doesn't mean that how we're doing Sabbath and Sunday is the best way to do it. It's just how we do it. I remember lamenting once I became aware of Sabbath and it began to just transform my life with Jesus, lamenting that we had already planted the church. We were a decade in at that point, and we'd planted a model of church where you know, there was no way for me to Sabbath on the same day as worship. And that's just the reality of the size of our church, the congregational model of our church, a band, volunteers, kids ministry, none of which are bad, none of which I'm against in the least bit. It's just the reality. If you're Tyler Staten, you have to Sabbath Friday night through Saturday, not on Sunday. But obviously, historically, those two things were not separate disciplines. They were together. And so you get the chance to imagine a church from the ground up. And however you do it, one of the main things that I'm learning about Sabbath and, you know, Jay's in our little Sabbath community and such, is that Sabbath is not an individualistic discipline. It is a community discipline, like worship. You know, I mean, technically you can worship by yourself, but the CD player is not as awesome as this, you know? And Sabbath the is CD? a deep player? Bro. <laughs> I still have one in my car. It's old, but... It's a thing. But, I mean, we're learning that. You know, Christian here is leading worship, and Jay and others that have been in our Sabbath community. Like, it is a community discipline. Ruth Haley Barton has a whole new book coming out on this, A Sabbath as a Community Discipline. I think that's the bleeding edge for those of us that care about Sabbath, is repurposing this, repurposing this from kind of introvert wellness discipline to community discipline of justice where we create Sabbath tables for all sorts of people and Sabbath rest and fund Sabbath for other people. So that's just a way of saying Bridgetown is incredible. That's how you have to do it at Bridgetown. You get to start from the ground up. Like, may the spirit of Jesus lead you to imagine the right foundation for whatever God is calling your church to, you know? Hi, I'm Tracy, I'm from Chino, California, and I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about how you've chosen to communicate that spiritual realism that you were talking about, where you know, you're gonna get into these things and there's going to be that, um, I, I'm, I feel real conviction to be clear and honest, so I was just curious what that looks like practically, who does it, um, where do you do it? Is it written, is it verbal? Yeah, it's, I can speak to that, it is everywhere, it's a deep conviction in my heart, you know, and once you're in the water, like if you're at Bridgetown, I don't really think about it, but that's one of the main things I hear from people that are new to our community, outside of our community, that for them is like a really new idea. And I think, you know, most, I don't know how to, I want to say this as graciously as possible, most pastors are not honest about how hard life with Jesus is. And so most of us overpromise and underdeliver, and then we, you know, like the, what's the Jungian line? When you create a pride position, you create a shame position. So the moment you tell people, hashtag the best is yet to come, I don't know what life you're living, but if by best you mean formed into the image of self-sacrificial love and by yet to come you mean through eternity mostly when you die, then yes, I agree with that statement. <laughs> If by best is yet to come, you mean your life will follow an up and to the right trajectory of a commercial plotline in a Marvel movie with a few setbacks, but mostly some really climactic moments. I just do not feel that way. That's not my experience of following Jesus, you know? And, um, so, and the tragedy is when we, when we paint this uh, aspirational vision of life in the kingdom of God, but we don't talk honestly about when we talk about the presence of God, we don't talk honestly about the dark night of the soul and whole years of our life where we often feel God feels more like absence than presence. Or we talk about, you know, often you will do the right thing in the way of Jesus and your life will get harder and more difficult and you will get punished for it or disciplined by the culture or lose your job or lose my, when we don't talk honestly about this, you know, then we just create this massive shadow side that I think is breeding ground for deconstruction, for cynicism, for shame, for hiding, for legalism. So if you have two extremes and on one side is like a, you know, overly optimistic, dishonest pastor trying to like keep hope alive but not being honest, and on the other side is like a cynical blogger, somewhere in between those two poles is Jesus, you know, who is just incredibly honest about how hard, come, take up your cross, deny yourself. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. 
Um, whoever serves me must follow me. And my Father will honor the one who serves me. Like until we get to that level of Jesus' honesty, and that's where I think we have to be, I think St. John of the Cross called it spiritual cartographers. We have to live all of this stuff before we ever bring it to our church. And then we just have to talk honestly, not as people who have arrived, but hopefully who are a little bit farther down the path than some of the people we're serving, about the contours and the landscape of the spiritual journey. And I, yeah, I remember I went through a four-year season where God just felt like absence. I remember what it felt like to take this radical step of faith and trust that God is gonna do this miraculous thing and then have everything fall apart and just be utterly disappointed and not know where God was. I went through this one experience of suffering and I felt so close to God. I went through this other one and I wasn't even sure I was still a Christian. The more we can talk honestly about that, but by bringing people in a Psalm-like way back to God through the honesty, the more I think we can actually shepherd people on their spiritual journey rather than just giving like spiritual consumerism kind of uplifting, you know, wellness shots in the arm kind of thing. So I think spiritual realism starts ultimately in a traditional kind of model church. It starts with the lead pastor in sermons talking about the beauty of life in the kingdom and community and discipleship and the reality. And these practices are awesome. And we have a rule of life. And you know what? I live all of these practices. I live by a rule of life. And I'm still losing my temper with my kids. And I'm still having multiple weeks where I'm just down. It's not a silver bullet. It's not like you do master the right formula and life is just awesome, you know? And um, so I think talking with hope and beauty, but honesty from the highest level down to pastoral coffees and conversations without cynicism and without um, dishonesty with a hopeful spiritual realism. I think that's the culture that we wanna build, you know? Can I add one thing to that? At a, at a very practical level, one of the things that Natalie and I do all the time with communities is what we try to do is, uh, the language we use is set healthy expectations. Because oftentimes when you're doing like the higher level, like best is yet to come stuff, you're actually at a leadership level setting an unrealistic expectation. So in the community scene, we talk all the time about Pete Scazzaro's four uh, fourth, I don't know, tenets of a healthy expectation of it being conscious. First off, you actually have to know that you have an expectation, uh, and then it has to be realistic. And then once you've gone through those, then you have to actually speak it out loud to somebody that you're ex having that expectation of, and then you have to agree upon it. And so every other meeting that Natalie and I have, you know, we'll hear the, the, what we call big emotions that come out of people. I'm done with community. I want to quit. Get me in a new one, all this stuff. And while we hear what you're saying, it sounds like it's a really tough time. Remember back in basics when we talked about expectations? Can we just walk through what, it, what do you think the expectation you have right now of community is? And then we walk through whether it's realistic, and it's not to shame, it's to guide, because we want to do more than just give new language and give new words. We want to actually shepherd people into a new way of living. So when we talk about disillusionment and all that, all the time in communities, we want to guide people in that space, not just, hey, once you figure it out, you know, we're over here. So very tangibly, we're also pastoring people in those spaces and training and teaching them to do it with each other as well, guiding and journeying alongside each other through what are we actually wanting and hoping yeah. for. It's offering people the gift of our real life with God, including our failures, our wounds, our questions, you know, that can really be a gift to people. Anything in the balcony yet? Anything at all, Sam? All right, yes. So we ha I have a question concerning community. Um, it's so beautiful to hear the concept about collective formation because sometimes it's really harder than personal formation and you know, we can pray and read the Bible, but when we ask our church to do that, it could be really difficult when um, failure happens. And I love what you said about, hey, you need to try and fail. Um, and one of the things before, when this Encouragement starts overwhelming you when it doesn't work the way that you thought it was going to be because we're here and We're super excited and we want to go You know, I, I was just getting super excited listening to all these things So maybe it might be the third cup of coffee I drank this morning, but it could be really, you know Discouraging when we go to our churches and we are faithfully serving and we want to push, you know, collective formation and, and then we fail and so my question is like how can we fail well in our in our context? What a great question. Thank you for that humility. I mean, I'll start, but I'm sure Bethany's got some thoughts on this one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> now, if there's no one pressure. person I know who fails up here. 
Bethany, show us how to fail forward. I'm right now, now. I'm now realizing yeah. where the, what that sounded I'm like. I'm just it kidding. Was doing. Yeah, Go, okay, Gavin. Right. There's more. Oh, anyway, all right. Um, one of one of the things that we've found at a community's level uh, is what John Mark was teaching about earlier is going slowly. Um, be, you know, we had a long years and years ago. We had a guy come in and do a, a Myers Briggs assessment thing yeah, with our so team. Helpful. Really helpful. And one of the things he told us is that it, I'm going to make these stats up, but it was something like this. You'll probably remember them. But like 70% of uh, leaders in a church are of the personality types where they want you to either feel something different or think something different when they're done with you. But 70% of the church is sitting there going like, but what do I do? Like, what do you want me to do? Uh, and so what, we, what practicing the way really has been is this experiment towards how do we, you know, toy that line of legalism of going like, because some of us are like, let me tell you what to do. I've got a few thoughts for you. Uh, we don't want to do that. But what we do want to do is sit with them long enough to hear the invitation of the Spirit. So whenever we make uh, massive changes in the communities department, we're doing that with our community leaders, not for our community leaders. Uh, and how we're doing that, John Mark, to steal one of your secrets that I'm sure you've said a thousand times and stole for someone else's, we lean into the ache. We don't... It's very true. It, right? You're, yeah. We lean into the ache. Well, our job is not to Mark create... Mark Scandrett. Okay, Mark Scandrett. That's who I stole that we, from. We don't create an ache. <laughs> this is bad. I'm doing bad up here. Um, <laughs> we don't create an ache. We lean into an ache that's already existing. So when we talk about silence and solitude of the church... We're not saying, hey man, there's this really cool practice from Jesus' life, let's do it. We're saying, hey, do you ever feel tired? Do you ever feel like you're going so fast and so far that at the end of the day you don't have anything left? Do you have this buzz of anxiety behind you and you don't know really much? We think there's, the, uh, there's a practice from the life and teaching of Jesus that addresses that and it's called silence and solitude. So what we're doing is we're going slowly enough to hear the ache and then to invite people into and at the table of figuring out what the solution towards that ache looks like from the life and teaching of Jesus. So failing well, I, th I think, starts with that. One, it, it involves not doing it alone uh, because the Christian life can't be lived alone. So you're doing it in a space together. Uh, but you're also trying to figure out what's the actual question being asked. We don't want a program. We don't want a new thing. We don't want a new, we don't want any of, we want life and life to the full. And if that's what the spirit has for us, we want to wait and figure out what it looks like. And we're not going to get it right the first time. We're probably not going to get it right the fifth or sixth or seventh time either, but we want to keep going. And so what we're vision casting to our leaders is, hey, would you come along with us until we get this right? Not, this is the, this is the last thing. It's going to be super incredible. And the next vision series, the next year, it's something totally different. Because they're going like, we were there the last time. What, what happened to that? Instead, we're communicating, come along that journey with us until we can figure out that's what, what Jesus meant. That's what we mean by a community of practice. Yeah, that's right. Like, you know, Scandrett calls them mini Jesus experiments. Yeah. Like, we're just trying to practice this, figure it out, figure out what to do. I don't know if you're asking this at all. I'm just gonna say it because I feel it as a leader. So maybe I'm just, I'm trying to think about you and your context of like, what is it? When you actually feel like you failed and then they've all flopped with you and it's just a bad feeling. The one thing I would say like, I mean, Gavin said all the brilliant stuff that you actually need to take home with you or whatever. But just as a, a way of stating it, at least in our experience is even in our failure, I think the, the invitation I think we've found from the spirit is humility. It's, you know, it's hum as a leader, it feels humiliating to fail. You know, I just did it last week. I just felt humiliated last week. Like, this is real, in real time, failing at something I should have seen and done or whatever. And I think what I would just say to that, which I know you already know, but that the humility is meant to actually lead you into the prophetic invitation of what's next. You have to move through the failure. You can't just let it be failure and bury it and just, like, hope to God it produces something over here for Todd. You know what I mean? Like... You, you, you get to move Who's as a... Todd? He's probably in the room. Yes. But I, I just mean, you, like, I think the mark of a good leader, when you're... <laughs> we bless you, Todd. Uh, the mark of good leadership is allowing, in the failure space, is allowing yourself to move all the way through it with humility. Yeah. We, wow. we rarely, and this is the spiritual realism of being exposed in that, yeah. being honest about that, letting the humiliation of our flesh be for the exaltation of the spirit and allowing that to like actually lead us into what's the new prophetic invitation and how we lead with continued humility and boldness by faith because of the promise of God. My weakness is his strength. So yeah. somehow God's got to remedy that at a leader level yeah. and call us forward. One yeah. final thought on, on failing. Um, 
is that something that comforts me a lot, both as a parent and as a leader, is that in you know, like the attachment styles research, that healthy and secure attachment is developed more profoundly through doing something wrong, apologizing and being restored than it is through doing something right. And so as, as a leader, um, I think a way to create trust is to acknowledge up front, hey, I'm gonna lead us into some things and I'm not going to bat a thousand. But when I fail, I'll stand in front of you and say, you know what, I went too fast or I did that wrong and it cost us and I see that now and I, I just wanna say I'm sorry and I acknowledge the cost that, that you endured through that leadership misstep on my part. Um, and that actually builds more the church that we're all trying to live into than doing all the stuff perfectly. Um, so I just want to say that as, as a comfort to leaders. And if you'd like to apply that to parenting, it's all that's keeping me alive. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all stand together. Oh, well said. Yeah, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Just before I do, John Mark wanted me, asked me to let you guys know the recordings of these sessions are available on cassette. If you would uh, if you'd oh. like to donate to my tape and radio ministry, <laughs> we have some envelopes in the back that you can make a pledge with. Yeah, let's, let, let me pray uh, to dismiss us. So I just want to pray this way. Would you come Holy Spirit? When I pray that, I'm not asking for the Spirit of God to become present somewhere the Spirit wasn't a second ago. I'm praying like the psalmist, awake my soul. So, Lord, would we become aware of you now? Come, Holy Spirit. And I just want to name a couple of things that I've just had a sense that, that are important to bring into the light as we head into lunch. The first one is that uh, they're interconnected. The first is I think that there very well may be a temptation in this room to be a practitioner before being an apprentice. And, and so I just want to say, maybe if, if you're in the room and your mind's running a million miles an hour about what all of this incredible teaching you've heard from John Mark this morning means for your church and how you could re-architect groups, and, but the true and deeper invitation is just become it. Then I just want to give you a second to, to partner with the Spirit just by opening your hands in front of you. If that's you, and you know the Spirit's invitation is become it. Would you just open your hands in front of you that, in a way of saying, Lord, I'm gonna let everything else go. And if I forget all the insights I was trying to jot down fast enough, and if this brilliant idea about the group structure just slips my mind, but all I take back is a greater vision of what it means to walk behind you all the days that I get, then that would be enough. So just let your hands be a prayer. And then the one other thing is at the end of Ephesians, it talks about standing against the devil's schemes, which is sharp language, but is a real part of who we're called to be as disciples of Jesus in this contested creation where there's a battle between light and dark. And I think that a scheme of the enemy in this room that's, that's alive right now that we need to bring into the light so it just shrivels up and dies is um, I want to read this exactly as I received it. There's some in the room who are realizing that what they've been doing for decades of ministry has been wrong. 
and not wrong in the actual, but wrong in the figurative sense. And the enemy is trying to breathe that into self-deprecating guilt, which would either paralyze the work of the Spirit or push them to change everything in their churches without talking about it, which would leave, leave their church exasperated. So if, if that's going on in your inner world, I just want to name that that's not the voice of the Spirit. It's the voice of the enemy. So acknowledge it as lie so that you can enjoy lunch <laughs> as someone who's completely free. So Lord, we do these two things. We submit ourselves to you as apprentices first. We recognize the schemes of the enemy in this place and we bring them into the light so that simply by confession and acknowledging them, Jesus, you might flood our inner worlds with your light. And we ask that the still small whisper of your spirit would be the one echoing in our minds as we step out from this place, get to know one another a bit better, and then come back to keep on diving into the journey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.